So many people think the Christian life is about the hereafter. Where do I go when I die? But really, it's about how the hereafter affects the here and now. On this episode of the Tower Hill Podcast. Welcome to the podcast of Tower Hill Church. This is Pastor Jason. I hope that this podcast helps you grow in your relationship with Jesus, that you feel like you're able to connect with God even while you are on the go. And however you listen to us, whether you're listening in your car or uh, on your way to work, maybe you work in the city, maybe you listen on the boat, maybe you're listening while you're cutting your grass, wherever this podcast finds you, I pray that it helps bless your life. And that's really what this whole thing is for, to have a weekly podcast, is to just have another opportunity to uh, make some space for God. I find that is just the real trick, isn't it? (laughs) Actually making space for God in our lives. It's tough. I think it's tough because our life is filled with really good things that we're excited to do. And we say yes to a lot of things. We want to hang out with friends. We want to be with family. If you got small kids, you definitely feel that pressure. And I don't mean pressure in a bad way, but pressure in a good way. You want to spend time with your kids. And what happens is life just gets away from you. And I think with today's technology, there is no excuse. This is what I tell myself. Jason, there's no excuse. You can connect with God. You can listen to great content. You can... Um, you can grow in your faith, in your understanding in so many different ways. And so hopefully this adds to the ways that you can receive content uh, that is helpful for your walk with Jesus. Well, as we around uh, the corner, not just around the corner, we're finishing our gospel and life series this week. Uh, Pastor Julie gave us a good sermon on eternity, which was the last in that installment, which is coming up in just a minute. But before we get to that, I did want to remind everyone, if you're listening in real time, that November begins this coming weekend, November 2017, which I can't even believe is November. Uh, and in fact, as I'm recording this, tonight is Halloween. So uh, I'm about ready to leave here and get dressed up as a shark attack victim for my kindergartner, who is going to be the shark. And uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. Anyway, launching into November, we are going to start a new series called Be Rich. And this is a generosity campaign. Um, This comes to us from our friends down at North Point. Uh, It's a wonderful program. It's a way that you can give, serve, love in the month of November. And my favorite part about this is that all the giving and the serving and the loving is for the people in the community. None of it is directed toward inside the walls of the church. Every dollar that's given goes right back out to local mission. All the food that we're collecting goes out to the people who need it. And so we're so excited to do that. That's called Be Rich, and that starts this Sunday. And hope that you can make it live, and if not, uh, you'll be able to listen right here on the podcast. Well, as we get ready to to hear this last installment of The Gospel in Life, uh, man, this is a good one, and a deep one, as we talk about eternity. What does eternity have to do with the here and now? Is being a Christian about the hereafter or the here and now? And why does the hereafter 
matter for the here and now. I hope that you enjoy it. Here it is, Pastor Julie with Eternity, the Gospel in Life. Well, today we conclude our eight-week series on the Gospel in Life based on the book by Tim Keller. Perhaps if you've been with us here over this past couple of months, you've been following along these themes about how we live out this gospel message in every area of our lives, in our relationship, in our work, in our homes, in our communities, in our world. If you were here last week, you might recall that Pastor Jason reminded us what the gospel looks like as we learn how to love our neighbors, all of our neighbors, in ways that show God's justice and mercy. And he reminded us that God is just and desires shalom. He gave us that image of a tapestry woven together, this flourishing of all areas of life. Now, that tapestry has been torn by sin, and we'll talk more about that, what that would look like woven back together. But now in this final week, we've come full circle from where we started. Week one, we talked about the topic of the city, the world in which we live, no matter what the population. A city back in Hebrew time could have been anywhere from 1,000 to 3,000 people. But that idea of the city, where we live. And now we come full circle to the topic of eternity, that is, the world to come. So when you hear this word, eternity, what comes to mind? Do you picture a stairway to heaven? Do you don't know what that is? Okay. Um, I'm seeing something different here than here. Go to the next one. No. Okay. Anyway, do you picture um, angels playing harp on a cloud? Do you picture um, Stairway to heaven, do you picture pearly gates? Some of us probably have this image of what eternity looks like. Or maybe eternity just seems so far and irrelevant as you're focusing your energy on the next week, the next day, the next hour. Your life is so full of worries and stressors. Well, I think it's important for us to ponder what we believe about the future because I think it determines how we live today. Theologian C.S. Lewis says that it is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. You may know the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard who says that all our anxieties are basically about time. We worry about the past that we cannot change and we are fearful and anxious about the future that we cannot control. Yet this is what haunts so many of us. When I worked as a hospice chaplain a few years ago, I became comfortable talking with people about the end of their earthly lives. That's what happens when you spend five days a week talking with people about death and every single one of your patients die. It was much harder than I anticipated. And there's such a wide variety of responses. Some patients and families I served wanted to talk about death and what would happen. Some didn't want to talk about it at all and were sure that they were going to get better. Some were afraid of dying and some were ready to go and had been for years. Perhaps you've heard the expression that someone who is so heavenly minded that they are no earthly good. 
My grandma was like that for about the last 15 years of her 97. She'd just say, I'm just waiting for the Lord to take me. I have no idea why I'm still here. Every day for 15 years. Well, some people had clear expectations about death and what it would be like, and some of those ideas were formed by Scripture. Some of the ideas were formed by, I don't know, books, movies, stories they had heard. And these folks seemed sure that after death, their activities would be just like the ones that they had enjoyed on earth. So maybe they'd be fishing or golfing with Jesus. Maybe they'd be on the beach. Um, and they were sure that their favorite foods and adult beverages would be there because, you know, that's what heaven's like. And they've just, it's interesting to hear people describe these activities as up there as we are down here. So, you know, someone would say, you know, Uncle Bob is probably up there fishing with Jesus all day long. I was a chaplain in Georgia, so I noticed I like slip into Southern when I talk about that. Anyway, just looking down on us, wishing we wouldn't be so sad. Now, there are places in both scripture and the creeds and confessions that talk about heaven being up and earth being below. But remember, at the time, they thought that the world was flat. And they also had this ancient Greek view that Plato taught that our bodies have two natures, that we have a physical one and a spiritual one, which meant that when they died, their bodies went into the ground, and then their, uh, when they, their souls would fly off into heaven without a care for the earth below. Now, this is quite different from the bodily resurrection that Jesus talked about and experienced. And it's quite different from the kingdom of God that he preached is both at hand and coming soon where heaven and earth come together, where God's ways replace our ways. I want to take a look at a couple of these visions from Scripture, one from the Old Testament and one from the New. First, from Isaiah, a prophet who describes this vision of a city, the New Jerusalem, with its gates open wide and where everyone treats each other with reverence and respect. So I'm going to begin reading now at verse 17. Okay, there we go. Instead of bronze, I will bring gold. Instead of iron, I will bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze. Instead of stones, iron. I will appoint peace as your overseer and righteousness as your taskmaster. Violence shall no more be heard in your land, devastation or destruction within your borders. You shall call your wall salvation and your gates praise. The sun shall no longer be your light by day, nor for the brightness shall the moon give you light by night. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, or your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light. And your days of mourning shall be ended. Your people shall all be righteous. They will possess the land forever. They are the shoot I planted, the work of my hands, so that I might be glorified. The least of them shall become a clan, and the smallest one a mighty nation. I am the Lord. 
In its time, I will accomplish it quickly. So compare this vision to the one that John shares at the very end of the Bible, at the very end of the book of Revelation. Notice its similarities. And I know this is more scripture than we usually have, but I think it's very important that we, we know what this says. So in Revelation it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. Next slide. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And then at the very end of Revelation, he describes it even a little bit more. It says, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light and the Lamb its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Wow. What can we make of these visions of eternity? that are so different from the ones we hear people talk about or we hear depicted in books or movies or popular culture. No mention of golf courses. No mention of oceans or lakes. No adult beverages. We don't know. (laughs) What would that be like? It sounds quite urban, doesn't it? Lots of metal Gold, silver, iron, precious gems. These are all images of permanence and stability and security. Things that don't change. And note that in these visions, nobody's going up to get there. This kingdom comes down. Heaven and earth come down to us here. So think about these visions and what it would look like, sort of fleshed out when we imagine heaven here on earth. We see a vision of a renewed culture with open gates, shared resources. Instead of keeping to themselves, every race and people group comes together. Open gates. Open gates. Think about that with our world of gated communities today. Cultures coming together to contribute what they have. And very different from the cities that we know, there's talk of no violence, no destruction. Peace and righteousness will be everywhere. We also see a vision of restored shalom. No more death, 
No more crying, no more pain, no more alienation between each other and families, between God, between races. No more war, no more hostility. This beautiful tapestry that had been torn by sin is rewoven and probably even stronger than before. And the last thing we see in these visions is renewed intimacy with God. Other places in scripture we see God is, we can't be in God's presence and live. You couldn't look directly at God. But here in this new heaven and earth, you can bask in God's presence. You won't be blinded by it. And our eternal home will be so full of God's glorious presence and light that we won't even need the sun or the moon. Think about what this vision of a new Jerusalem, this new heaven and earth, with full and restored human flourishing, what would that look like played out in our everyday world? Think about what the implications would be in healthcare, education, business, whatever your field is, the arts, government, relationships. Think about that. Reconciliation, peace, no violence, no destruction. God's presence felt everywhere. Imagine a world, if you would, so different from the one we know now, where everyone was totally committed to unity, to reconciliation. We saw ourselves as being on the same team. It's a whole new way of us thinking. We're working together in every possible area. And imagine what that vision would look like in our commerce, in our culture, with equal access to resources. Everything is available equally to everyone, not just based on where you live or what your parents do or the color of your skin. Education, health care, libraries, the arts. Everyone has everything equally available to them. And then imagine what that shalom would look like in our relationships, where there is kindness and forgiveness practiced and lived out everywhere. Now nasty words, no road rage, no mean emails, whatever the case may be. We'll be doing things with excellence and integrity focusing on kindness. Well, what do you think it would look like? Stephen Covey talks about beginning with the end in mind. What would it look like if we kept that end in mind as we went about our days? How might it change the way that we see the world and the way that we think of ourselves? I know it can be difficult to imagine a world That is different than the one we know now. And we even value and talk about being fully present. Don't worry about the past. Don't worry about the future. I do think that is important. But today, I want to invite us to do both. And that is to look back and to look forward. You may be aware that today, this week, actually Tuesday, is the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation of which we are a byproduct of. 
in the Presbyterian Church and all Protestant churches. And I think to really appreciate that importance of that event, I think it helps to go further back in history and remember how following Jesus went from a tiny Jewish sect to a controversial movement to a Greco-Roman religion to a world faith. In case this is new to anyone, I'm going to give us what I call 15 centuries of church history in less than five minutes. Are you ready? Fasten your seatbelt. Okay, in the first hundred years, you may know that the church was a Jewish sect. It wasn't called the church. It was, they were just called followers of the way. And it was illegal and countercultural. They met in secret, underground sometimes. Can you imagine being arrested for your faith, as many were? In fact, some of the early church leaders were put on trial for the charge of being a Christian. And others were willing to die for their faith and later celebrated as martyrs. Well, by the end of the third century, this movement had grown from 25,000 to over 20 million followers and expanded beyond its Jewish roots, as you may already know, throughout the Mediterranean to non-Jewish folks, Gentiles, Greeks, all different cultures, it was the most rapid period of church growth in all of history. Then after the martyrs came the monks who rejected the trappings of the church, left their worldly belongings and their homes and their families to seek God in the desert, in Egypt, in caves. They were led by people like Anthony the Great, who was considered the perfect monk, who showed them the way. Later in the 4th century, you may have heard of Emperor Constantine, who had a dramatic conversion experience when he encountered Christ for the first time, and he came home and declared his entire empire a Christian nation. If you live here, you are a Christian. Well, that sounded like a good idea, except it didn't really work, because they weren't convinced of the truth in their hearts. And at the time, they're deciding all kinds of things with bishops like the dates of Easter, which I still don't understand, and there's talk of maybe having them be the same every year, someday soon. Anyway, they talked about theological doctrines. They talked about which books to include in the Bible. They talked about what we can agree on, and they started writing creeds. Because before that, every church had their own list of what what they thought was important. Later, 5th century, we have Augustine. He was a theologian who wrote about grace, and salvation. And he wrote about his own struggles and confessions that really touched the people of the day and continue to affect us today. And that spread throughout the Western Europe, Ireland, England, Scotland. Next came Pope Gregory the Great. You don't hear a whole lot about him. He wasn't as smart as Augustine, but he knew how to surround himself with good people. And his goal was to make the church great again. But life was so full of gloom and doom that he believed he'd be the last pope before the world ended. Things were going on a very scary and self-destructive path. The next, you might know that the um, capital of Roman Empire moved to Turkey, and then the West and East split, the West speaking uh, Latin and the East speaking Greek, and what do you know? Their leaders don't agree, and that lead to the split of this one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We got the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church still split to this day. That was the year 1054. Well, I'm going to fast forward through the Dark Ages, 
Rome unraveling, uh, the Byzantine Empire starts uh, flourishing in the eastern half, and state holidays are Christian holidays. They probably said Merry Christmas. State contracts are executed with the sign of the cross, and even the Roman chariot races began with hymns. That sounded good in theory, but this stable, unified Christian world did not last because the disagreements about faith became political disagreements. And the empire was just trying to keep everybody, emperor was trying to just keep everybody together and can't we all just get along and have peace and harmony? But the Christians continued to argue and debate. Imagine that, Christians arguing and debating. Well, a lot of these arguments were not over the color of the carpet or, you know, what time church should be. They were about really substantial things like what is the nature of Christ? Is he human or divine? Is he half and half or 60-40 or 90-10 or God on the inside and human on the outside? This is what the church argued about for, wait for it, 500 years. Yes, you heard that right. From the year 325 to 787, there were seven different meetings where this is what the church talked about. Who is Jesus? Well, while we were busy arguing about that, Islam was born and spread and unified the Arab world. Fast forward through the Crusades, the Middle Ages, the plagues, the wars, the shift to an individual focus of how we experience God, thanks to the mystics. And then the church really began to lose its way. See, most people couldn't read and write. They didn't know much about the Bible, so they relied on the educated people, the priests, to tell them what the Bible said. But over time, the bishops and priests were less educated and less trained, and they taught things that were not in the Bible, like if you do enough good works, you will get to heaven, and if you don't do enough good works, you might end up in purgatory. But if you give a little bit more to the church treasury, I think we can work that out and God will forgive you. Well, the good news is people were learning how to read and write. And the printing press had been invented, which was spreading uh, the Bible and, and other Christian literature. But the bad news was that this message made people very anxious. They always wondered, am I doing enough? Am I doing enough uh, for God to love me? Am I doing enough? to go to heaven. They didn't hear the good news of the gospel, that a loving God was offering them forgiveness and salvation, not because of what they do, but because of what Christ had already done. They weren't hearing this message. And others tried to speak up, professors and others who were scholarly kept saying this was wrong. But it wasn't until one day that a young monk and professor from Wittenberg, Germany, in 1517, decided he couldn't stand it anymore. He decided he wasn't going to stay silent. He knew from reading his Bible that we are saved by faith, by grace through faith, believing what we hear, not observing the law or not based on anything we do. And one morning after he taught his lecture on Galatians, uh, about the living by faith instead of living by the law, 
He went home and wrote down 95 things, 95 points of debate against the church, what the church was practicing and teaching. Martin Luther. Now, he didn't do it by himself, but we certainly remember his actions in significant ways. And next, you probably know, on Halloween, knowing that people would be there the next day, All Saints Day, remembering their loved ones, he posted these 95 arguments on the castle door. That's what posting meant before the days of social media. It was like the, tr- it was like the town bulletin board, literally. That is what he did. That just to him was a simple act of faith. I don't think he woke up that morning and said, I think I'm going to change the world. I think he woke up that morning saying, how can I be faithful to God and to the scriptures that I know to be true? He was simply willing to take a risk for his faith in order to share this good news and this vision with others. Well, about nine years ago, I was invited to Geneva, Switzerland to be part of a week-long study with 10 pastors from the Presbyterian Church and 10 pastors from the Church of Scotland. And I don't really remember much about the papers we wrote or the critique, but I remember learning so much history about Protestant Rome, as they call it, in ways that changed my thinking about the future and the past. Some of you I know that have gotten to the Holy Land or other places have had similar experiences. It made me appreciate the work of Martin Luther and those that carried it on. One of the first places we visited was the Reformation Wall, where these larger-than-life statues, they're like, I don't know, 20 feet tall? They're huge. I think you can see someone's head in the corner, so you can kind of guess how huge they are. Um, these are the people who persevered for the Christian faith against all odds. Farrell, he was from French. I mean, these are people like kicked out of their countries. Beza was Calvin's student. Then Knox was in Scotland. There's many others on the wall, but these are the big ones right in the middle. People that we have to thank that took risks for their faith. And then right near the statues, kind of down, down the way, I guess, to the right, was a tunnel where Christian refugees could sort of get smuggled in, those who were being persecuted for their faith. And it made me think about how many people risked their lives for their faith. We worshiped at the breathtaking Cathedral of Saint-Pierre, where Calvin preached, and the excavation site underneath it from thousands and thousands of years before, 350, 400 uh, the years 300 to 400 with just ancient, ancient ruins. We learned that John Calvin that preached in the um, pulpit in this church preached against all kinds of opposition. People had their dogs barking. They pretended to cough loudly to drown him out. They shot their guns outside while he was preaching and they sicked their dogs on him. I don't think I'd be up here if people did that to me on a Sunday morning. He got anonymous death threats And then later we walked through the auditorium where Calvin uh, first shared these ideas of the Reformation, ideas of worship and education and democratic church government. It's just a small space, but just so amazing to stand there in it. So these are the lengths that those first reformers went through to defend this gospel message, this good news that changes our hearts and our relationships and our work and our world. 
And I got to thinking, I wonder if any of us would be willing to go to such lengths, to stick our necks out like that. I don't know that I could. I don't know that I could. Well, as we continue to think about how we can live out this gospel message in every part of our lives, I want us to remember all these saints who have gone before us, all these people who have risked their lives for the cause of faith. I also want us to remember that we don't have to wait until we die to be part of this kingdom of God that Jesus talked about. We can be part of ushering it in right now. I want us to remember that our God, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, continues to do new things in the church. Our church that is reformed and always reforming, always changing according to the word of God with our new understanding and insight. And that same God continues to do a new thing in our lives. Well, maybe this talk of eternity and the church history lesson doesn't do much for you. And that's okay. But I know that you were probably one who has regrets or resentments about the past and fears and anxieties about the future. If that is you, I want you to know that Christ is present to you right here, right now. And God has already redeemed that past that you regret or resent and is already present in that future that you worry about. And that, God, that life that God promises to us is more powerful and brighter than anything we could ever fear or regret. Thanks be to God. <laughs>